This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can join us for the next 60 minutes. And if you are studying God's Word and there's a particular question or challenge that you would like to discuss or email us, uh, we're happy to dialogue with you. Several ways in which you can contact us. Again, locally, the number of the 843 exchange is 525-1859. We have a toll-free number. It's 877. The call letters WAGP 980 or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Uh, if you call, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way. Or if you don't have a problem, uh, you can go on the air live. Some people are hesitant to do that. A lady asked me, she said, I have a question. Can I? Uh, this was on Sunday, and said, can I call you on the Bible line? I said, sure. And and um, she lives in Asheville, and she was down for the service on Sunday. And I said, as long as you don't mind thousands of other people listening to the question. She said, no, I have no problem with that. But some people, they're a little hesitant, and so you can dictate your question. But we do give priority to live callers. Now, a ton of questions have come in. They come in every day more than I can probably answer. People say, well, why didn't you answer my question it's not that I don't want to. I would be at the computer all day answering questions, and I, I can't physically do that in light of other commitments God has given me to do. But we answer as many of them as we can. So let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right. Our first question comes from the country of Mauritius, which is in East Africa. And this listener would like to know the following. They write, Dr. Brogy, I'm new to the Christian faith. I was a Hindu I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now I'm still in sin and cannot stop it. Please help me. I'm having difficulty in my financial uh, areas as well. It is becoming difficult for me to tithe. What should I do? I pray but cannot see results. Why? Well, uh, assuming you're a new Christian from the Hindu faith, that's wonderful. And uh, I know you live in a country there on the east coast, of the southern part of Africa, where approximately half the people are Hindu. So that's a big step on your part to leave uh, what is really a false religion and to embrace the one true God through Jesus Christ. Uh, you're experiencing some of the turmoil a new Christian knows. Uh, Paul says, the good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very thing I don't wish to do. And the fact that you're concerned and you want to change is usually a, typically a mark that you have a new nature in Christ Jesus. But you need to grow because, you see, when you come to faith, while you become a child of God, you become a baby Christian. And so there are certain essential truths that you need to learn. Uh, I am teaching a course on Wednesday nights. We offer it on Sunday mornings called the Discovery Class. But because of COVID, we have not met in our adult Bible fellowships. 
and we had had about 90 new believers in the two services that were attending that class. So I said, I'm just going to update the course and freshen it up. I, I've tweaked it a number of times since 1980, but we're doing it right now on Wednesdays, and it's called Basic Discipleship. So thus far, we've done 13 sessions, three handouts. Uh, it took 13 weeks to do the three handouts. So there's a total of 21 handouts. I won't be teaching every week, but when I am, a handout will usually take sometimes one week, sometimes three weeks, sometimes five weeks, depending on the material. So people normally at CBC will sit in the discovery class for upwards of a year, and it really gives them the grounding they need, and that's what you need to do. Uh, What's his first name here? Salesh? Salesh, yes. Salesh. So Salesh, um, that's what you need to do. You need to go online at communitybiblechurch.us or at searchthescriptures.org. Type in under the search mode, basic discipleship. You want to start with topic one, session one. So topic one is eternal security and assurance of salvation. Uh, And there's four sessions, four parts to that one handout. And the handouts are available for your printing online. They're copyrighted. People ask me all the time, can... Can I reproduce them? And I say, yes, just keep the copyright on it, please. And then secondly, the the second session or the second topic called Maintaining Fellowship with God, that is the second one that you want to work through. And there's four weeks to that, four parts. And so I teach about 55 minutes for each of those sessions. But that session deals with things like temptation and how to overcome temptation and to uh, walk closely with God, and I think that will help you immensely as well. So what you're saying, it's the cry of a new believer, and so you need to learn to grow. In terms of tithing, listen, you you, you know, I, I, I know your country is not the wealthiest country in the world, and sometimes Christians get discouraged like they can't give more. God asks you to give from your increase. And so um, if you make $10 this week, a tithe would be $1. Uh, so that's where you start with a tenth. And uh, I was in a South African village with the cozy people, and I was staying at a pastor's house, and uh, he said, oh, man, my dog food's gone again. I said, what, stray dogs? He said, no, there's children in the village who come sometimes who are hungry who eat the dog food. And so I asked him one of the questions about tithing and how people gave and he said, well, most of the people in our village are unemployed. I said, well, they obviously have some means to eat. They're not all starving to death. And he said, well, yeah. And I said, well, that's where they need to begin to tithe. If they grow 10 ears of corn, they bring one to the local church. And then in turn, you could have a food ministry to some of these unbelievers who don't even attend your church, especially the children and begin to reach out and minister to them. God will honor the tithe, and so that's where you start, one-tenth. So don't be frustrated if there's no increase, but you probably have something, even if you have a garden, and you can start there. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, thanks for calling today. How can we be of help? Absolutely. I was uh, listening to your sermon on Daniel 5 this week, and uh, I had two two questions came up, uh, not regarding Daniel 5 itself, but some of the things that you reference in it. The first one, and I've heard you use this term before, uh, Reformed or Reformed Brothers. When I look it up online, 
it looks like maybe it's Calvinist. I don't really understand what you're saying uh, when you're when you're saying reformed, and it appears as if you're saying we are not part of that. So, if you wouldn't mind uh, explaining just yeah, what that yeah, word. Yeah, no, means that's quickly. a great question. And then, it, and then I'll ask my other question. Yeah. Then I'll hang up and listen. All right. But it was regarding uh, you were talking about uh, when someone can drink alcohol, and you were referencing Proverbs thirty-one six. Uh, that you can give it yes. to someone that's dying. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain maybe Proverbs 31, 7. Okay. That one. Yep. Sure uh, will. It uses some other word that just makes it sound like uh, if you're having a bad day. You know, <laughs> right, 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 right. No. I'm with you. I, I follow you. All right. Let me, let me start first with some definitions here. Um, the word reformed has kind of been robbed, and I actually have a sermon on this whole thing. Uh, if you go to my series on Titus, I did kind of an anniversary sermon on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, which we have on the stained glass window behind me. Uh, when we built our new building, I said, I would really like to design a stained glass window with all five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, sola is means alone, and it's from Latin. And on the front of our pulpit, I have the word sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. So fundamental to Reformed theology was Scripture alone is our final authority. Sola gratia, that's grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Um, Sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. So salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, apart from works, through faith alone that appropriates that grace um, based on the Scripture alone, which is our final authority, and not outside sources, all to the glory of God alone. That was the essence of Reformed theology. And there were people during the Protestant Reformation who affirmed those things, who didn't necessarily affirm Calvinistic teaching. Uh, Calvinism is a big word. We often think of Calvinism just in terms of the doctrine of election. Look, every Christian believes in the doctrine of election. It's not a matter, does God elect? The question is, how does God elect? On what basis does God elect? And I would say on the basis of foreknowledge, and they would too, but they're just redefining the word foreknowledge. And it's used in different ways in Scripture. Uh, Most of the time, it is used just to refer to some prior knowledge, prognosco, that people had uh, before um, you know something took place. So, for instance, in 2 Peter 3, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. There it is, the word prognosco. But some Calvinists, like John Calvin, inject into there God choosing one person over another in eternity past. So I take it that before the foundation of the world, Christ knew who was going to be saved. If he didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. But that God's foreknowledge is based on how we would respond to his work in our life. Man who is dead in sin has no capacity on his own to come to Christ. So the initiative has to begin with God. Uh, And the Lord said, unless the Father draws you, no one can come to the Father. So it begins with God, but you are still a free moral agent. And so because Calvin and others like him, he's not alone in this camp, because they believe that the church was the new Israel, and sadly, you know, Luther and Calvin said some very embarrassing things about um, Israel. They believed that the church had replaced Israel, that the new Israel was the body of Christ. 
And so that makes really a number of passages quite complicated for a guy like John Calvin. Among other things, um, how do you deal with passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11? Well, if you believe that God has finished his work with Israel and there's no future for the people of Israel, then you have to interpret 9, 10, and 11, not God electing one nation out of the many nations of the world, but God electing individuals. And so that's how he took it. But if you just simply read, I think, Romans 9, 10, and 11, you would discover that it's really not dealing with the election of individuals, except as it focuses on the election of a nation. Um, So in chapter 9, he deals with Israel's election. Why did God, out of all the nations of the world, choose Israel? In chapter 10, he deals with their current rejection. Uh, Why are they in unbelief? Why did they not, for the most part, nationally embrace Jesus as Messiah? And then in chapter 11, he deals with their future restoration. That God's not done with Israel, but Calvin because he was influenced by Roman Catholicism, and the predecessor to that was really Augustine, uh, these guys said that the church was the new Israel. Now, in Roman Catholicism, they made the church being the institution, the Roman Catholic institution. Calvin, of course, grew up that. He was a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk. And these guys realized, hey, you know, it's not the institution that God has as his church, but those who are born again. And they went back to the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone. So the the term reformed has been robbed, kind of like the word charismatic. Today you speak about a charismatic Christian, and typically what you mean by that is someone who speaks in tongues. Where technically, if you're a biblical Christian, you're a charismatic Christian and that you believe that indeed God has given every born-again, blood-bought child of God a spiritual gift that they are to utilize in the body of Christ. But Calvinism is really a whole um, wide embrace of, of, of doctrine. So he had a certain ecclesiology in terms of, since we are the new Israel, Calvin thought that much of the principles that were found in a theocracy and there was only one theocracy in the history of the world, and it was the one that God established with the people of Israel, uh, that those principles applied. So, for instance, Calvin had someone, um, you know, killed, burned at the stake for the simple reason that he was errant in theology. You know, should should we execute people today if they are heretics? I don't think so. Um, But Calvin certainly thought that, and it influenced what he did in Geneva and some of the decisions that he made. Uh, his uh, view of, you know, infant baptism would parallel Roman Catholics in that they baptize little babies, but um, he put a different spin on it. So every realm of theology, the doctrine of end times, he sees no future for Israel. And so our Reformed brothers today, um, and there would be guys like John Piper that you'd know, and I, I could name, you know, a few dozen here, uh, R.C. Spurl, who more recently went to heaven and these guys see no significance at all to the people of Israel. Uh, they, they believe the church is the new Israel. And so their eschatology, the doctrine of end times, you know, Israel has no role in it. Uh, they think that everything that God was going to do with Israel, he did by 
70 AD, and that was the end. So, again, if you mean by Reformed theology that you believe in the five solas of the Reformation, then I would call myself a Reformed Christian, as would, like, say, the Anabaptists, who didn't embrace Luther or Calvin on a whole number of issues. Anabaptist, it was almost a, a slur word. Anna means again. So the Anabaptists, quote-unquote, baptized people twice. And um, so they used it in a disparaging way, but eventually the denomination that we call Baptist today really came out of that title, uh, Anabaptist. It's interesting to even study the... Um, the history of denominations like Methodist, where did that come from? Well, you know, John Wesley was a very methodical man in terms of how he followed up new Christians. And so eventually, though he himself was never a Methodist, never left the Church of England, uh, the title stuck. And so we had a whole denomination that developed that were called Methodists. So I would, you know, not today probably call, I would believe in Reformed theology in some aspects of it, but not in terms of their doctrine of the church, in terms of how they view the church in relationship to Israel. I think God makes a distinction between Israel and the church, and that would be the major breaking point between Reformed theologians and others. And so their view of election, their doctrine of soteriology, and a number of Things are all influenced by that one single thing. Anyway, if you listen, you're in Daniel, which is great. And listening to Daniel before you listen to Revelation will be of tremendous uh, you know, strength to your study of Revelation because really what happens in Daniel, especially as you get like into the ninth chapter, you will be getting a schematic for the book of Revelation, and then the book of Revelation is going to fill in the details. So if you stay in the study and go all the way through Revelation, your question is going to be addressed in great details in several places all the way through, even in the introductory sermon. The way and Calvin, well, he wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible, and I have a full set of commentaries in my library the only book he didn't write a commentary on was, of course, the book of Revelation. Now, in reference to uh, Proverbs 31, it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him, let him, let him who? Him to whose life is perishing and forget his poverty. So it's a Hebrew parallelism. That's the way it's constructed grammatically. And every Orthodox Jew or anyone who's had a I know some people get a year of Greek or Hebrew, and they're dangerous with it because they haven't had enough. But um, this is what we'd call a Hebrew parallelism, and he's dealing with someone who is dying, and because of that, his life is miserable, and he's, he's an impoverished person. And the term poverty is not just used in terms of finances in Scripture, but it's used in terms often in terms of health and pain and suffering. And so it, the parallel today would be giving, say, someone who is sick morphine, uh, not because you want to make him a drug addict or give him a high, but because you're expressing an act of mercy. Uh, but what you might want to do to, if you want to study this whole issue of the Christian and alcohol, and I'm actually going to write a paper and a, and a book on it. Um, I've been... Uh, thinking about this for a long time. And so, uh, but right now you could go to my sermon on John chapter two, where Jesus does the miracle of turning the water into wine. 
and I deal not only with that passage and how that's often abused, but I deal with a number of other parallel scripture. All right, I think we've got some other people waiting. All right, the Liz from Bluffton would like to know, how relevant is speaking in tongues today? I was under the impression that because God's Word is translated into many Bibles, there's no need. Well, you're, you're, you're right, Liz. You're absolutely correct. So speaking in tongues, there's only one passage in the New Testament that actually describes what it looked like, and that's Acts chapter 2. And so in Acts chapter 2, people spoke a, a real language. It's the word glossolalia in Greek, and not only a language, but he also uses Luke in that passage describing what took place in the day of Pentecost, the Greek word dialectos. We get our word dialect. So they spoke real languages and dialects within a language, and that was a miracle. And of course, when Pentecost came and the 120 spilled out of the upper room there under the southern steps, uh, people were just astounded because they knew that these languages these folks were speaking were not native to them, yet they were speaking it perfectly and giving praise and worship to God. And so it was an outward sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. Paul will um, enumerate on in his dialogue on this gift, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And of course, in the early church, too, one expression of tongues was it was revelationary. And so you couldn't say, well, what did Paul say on the subject of, of giving or finances or submission to government? Or Because he hadn't written some of those books yet. So God, by direct revelation, would give someone a tongue. And if you knew me and you know I speak English and all of a sudden I'm speaking you know, fluent Chinese, you'd say, whoa, what, what happened to Carl Brogy? He not only is speaking Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese. And this is a miracle is happening here. And then someone else who had the gift of interpretation would interpret. Now, again, you are to be careful because the spirits of, uh, that are expressed in a service, First John 4 teaches, are to be tested. Even prophets were subject to other prophets because there was a, also a revelationary dimension to the gift of prophecy in the early church. But when the scripture was completed, interestingly, church history records that the revelational aspects of gifts just disappeared. And so tongues didn't show up again until the early 1900s. Well, was the church lacking or in ignorance or an unbelief for, you know, nearly 1900 years? No, not at all. There was no need for it because of the completed canon of scripture. And what we're seeing today is really no different from Kindalani Hinduism. I've been to India a couple times in one church I went to, and these folks were speaking in tongues, and a lot of them had come out of a Hindu background, and they just carried the practice right over into their church. And, you know, we got into discussions about this was not healthy, this was dangerous, you're, it was synchro, you know, synchronizing, you know, Hinduism into Christianity, and, and you see this problem in some cultures of the world because world because the church is untaught and they need to be instructed in the word of God. So now today we have a completed canon. So if you were to speak in a tongue, how would I know whether or not it was true? The only way I could evaluate it would be to go to the 66 books of the Bible that I have. And if it did not match, then I would have to throw it out. If it contradicted the Bible, I'd say, well, you can't take away from Scripture. 
If it added to the Bible, I'd say, well, you've gone beyond the reach of Scripture. So the word canon, we speak of the canon of Scripture, that's from a Latin word that means a measuring rod or a measuring stick. So we have a measuring rod in which to evaluate truth. So if that's how God is working today, there's really no need for the gift of tongues, not to mention it's not being given in the way it was expressed in the first century. Now, some people get around it and they say, well, I'm not speaking in tongues. It's a prayer language. You can't find that in Scripture, that there's this prayer language that is distinct from the gift of tongues. Or they'll take the verse in 1 Corinthians 13 where um, they say, well, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And so they'd say, well, this is not a human tongue. This is an angelic tongue. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, Paul is using hyperbole here. He's not saying that humans, the church, speak in angelic tongues any more than he's saying that an individual can know all mysteries and have all knowledge. There's only one person who has all knowledge and all mysteries, and it's God himself. He's using hyperbole here to draw home a point that if this were possible and I didn't have love, it means absolutely nothing. And so the gift of tongues, you know, again, it kind of gets back to the first question this brother asked about Reformed. You know, the, the word charismatic has been robbed, though technically there is a distinction between charismatics and Pentecostals. But, you know, we should all see ourselves as charismatic Christians in the sense, not that we speak in tongues, but in the sense that God has given every believer on his spiritual birthday, not only the Holy Spirit to indwell that individual, but a spiritual gift in which to serve the body of Christ. And that's how discipleship takes place, where the body of Christ comes together in these different gifts, mercy, teaching, exhortation, serving, all these gifts are functioning together for the maturation and the building up of the body. What I might encourage Liz, who is called in this question to do, would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, and I have a course on spiritual gifts, and even if you don't want to listen to the whole course, it's 135 pages plus, there's an inventory with that you can take with questions online, and uh, but section six deals with the sign gifts in the New Testament. So I deal with uh, miracle healings, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And I go through a very, very, very careful explanation of uh, tongues and its abuses today and what did it really look like. And we compare Scripture with Scripture. And uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but if you really want to study this issue and be well-grounded, that might be a starting place for you. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a woman listener called in a minute ago and dictated her question. She wants to honor her husband and knows that he is the head of the house, knows that she's called to submit to him. But what should she do if he's not handling the financial responsibilities, paying the bills, etc., in a timely fashion, and things are being allowed to fall through the cracks? Well, um, let me just uh, pause and you should have a good heart-to-heart conversation with him to start, you know, at a good time, not when there's a conflict going on, but just to let him know that, you know, you've got something that you'd like to sit down and really discuss with him. And again, I I don't think most men 
would want to fall behind in their, you know, basic responsibilities. Oh, the rent wasn't paid or we're two months behind and and just because of mismanagement. And so you're his helpmate. And so you want to come alongside and be a helper to him. And it might be as simple as um, taking a course like the theology of money that I offer where I go through virtually everything that God says in the Bible on the subject of money. We start with stewardship. And that's the critical place to start because your husband, especially as the head of the home, is someday going to, I'm assuming he's born again, he's going to be at the judgment of the just, the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment every Christian faces, not to see if we go to heaven, but how we will be rewarded as saved people. And one aspect of stewardship is money. In fact, half of Christ's parables deal with the subject of money. Uh, so this is an important, important subject. And, and so we deal with stewardship, we deal with giving, we deal with debt, we deal with investing, we deal with budgeting, just, just the basic nuts and bolts of what God says about money. And I would highly encourage you maybe to take that course together. And if you're local, we have volunteers in our church that, assuming someone has taken the course, we will set you up with a financial counselor at no charge to you. But if you come and you haven't taken the course and gone through the final applicational step where you've at least attempted to make a budget, and a lot of people don't know how to make a budget, but again, we we help you with that. Then we'll sit down with a financial counselor. And again, some, some guys, they just didn't get this growing up. You know, there are some expenses, for instance, that come once a year, that come uh, twice a year, that come quarterly. And they think, oh, you know, we got a little extra money this week. Well, actually, you don't, because if you're on a budget, you'd want to be putting aside for that annual, you know, uh, tax bill that comes if you're a homeowner or maybe the biannual insurance that's due every six months or whatever it might be. And so a budget really helps you to plan. And it might be that is his wife. You could help him with the mechanics. Ultimately, he needs to be over it. But you might be able to help him with the mechanics of, in light of his time uh, in the management of that. But he needs to be the head of it. So listen, sit down with him, talk to him, express your concerns, <laughs> you know, ask him, honey, do you like it that we're, you know, we had trouble paying the electric bill and they almost turned off our power line? No, I don't like that. Well, you know, if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and we expect things to change, it's probably not going to happen. So what change can we enter here into the equation? And you sit down and you talk it through. Uh, don't make it a battle or a fight, but let him know that you're his helpmate. And then if he refuses to listen, then you have to let him fall on his face. And sometimes it's not until a guy falls on his face that he says, you know, my wife warned me about this. And she really is my helpmate. And that's what you need to echo when you sit down. You know, God gave me to you to be your helper. And, you know, I, I have insights that, uh, that you need because I'm your helper. And to um, let him know that, that you respect his authority, but that you want to come alongside and help. And sometimes when a guy does fall flat on his face, he says, you know, my wife warned me and and then he'll come back with a little bit more humility. So that's where I would start. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, brother, yeah, what's going on? 
Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Concerning ministers and behavior or deacon behavior, like example, like if you're a church member and you try to, you know, express yourself in the church about certain topics and they refuse to listen or they down, they put you down like you don't know what you're talking about and they or they interrupt you and don't give you a fair chance to express yourself and cut you off or they claim the word of knowledge that God told them this and that. And you really believe that it's not really true, but they think it's all about gossip. And they wait until somebody, the pastor shows up to say, so, 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 God told me we wouldn't know if we already gossip to him. And you know for a fact it's going around. And you, how can you prove that it's not really from God? It's really, it's really gossip when he claims that God showed him, revealed it to him and stuff like that. Or a lot of church members, like, they don't appreciate the young people's understanding of the Scripture. And they think that they're older. They think that they know more, they know it all. And they don't appreciate other people's understanding of scripture or insight or illumination of God's scripture. And they push down the youth. They don't appreciate what they have to say. So what's your opinion on that? Well, there's a lot of questions in that whole uh, statement, but uh, let me see if I can respond. Let me just raise the last issue that you said about gossip over a pastor. Uh, the Bible gives us some clear instructions in 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. And the word elder, pastor, some English translations, bishop, is used interchangeably of the same office. So there's not this hierarchical structure above the local church. Uh, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So people can run around town and say all kinds of things about an elder or even about a church where it's just not true. And so when people, you know, make a statement to you that you think is gossip, the biblical principle is, hey, look, if you have a problem against your brother, the Bible says that you are to go confront him in, 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 in you know, in private. That's the, that's the instruction that Jesus gave. And if he then doesn't listen to you, you take two or three witnesses. See, let everything be done on the basis of two or three witnesses. So if your brother sins, you think he's really living in sin, you, you go to him in private. So why, why are you coming to me? Have you gone to pastor so-and-so? And if you haven't, then you're in violation of Matthew eighteen fifteen. And if, well, I went to him, but he just didn't listen. Well, then I'm assuming there's at least two, you know, two or three other people who are aware of this problem. And then together you can go with those other people because again, he quotes Moses here that everything is to be established on the mouth of two or three witnesses. So Paul is just basically reciting what God had revealed in, 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 in the Torah. And then if he refuses to listen, then it becomes a church wide issue because if you have a pastor say, where it's not gossip and he's living in sin because you've gone through the proper channels and you've done it biblically, then he really needs to be dismissed. And uh, he's not qualified at that point to, to lead as your pastor. But, you know, when you speak, well, you know, I have talked to someone, they say, well, I've got this word of prophecy or God gave me a word of no. You can't fight that. I mean, you can't battle that. Because what they're basically saying is, thus saith the Lord. And they're putting this so-called word of knowledge that they have had, direct revelation from God, on the same level of Holy Scripture. And I wouldn't attend a church like that. 
if that's the, you know, if you've got one or two people in the church who think that way, contrary to the official position of the church, that's one thing. But if that's the tenor of the church, you're in the wrong church. <clears throat> you're wasting your time. And if you're a dad and you're raising your children, you're exposing your family to bad doctrine and you need to find another Bible-believing church that's sound in doctrine. The word sound uh, that Paul uses when admonishing <clears throat> Timothy to preach sound doctrine, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually a medical term. It means healthy. I preach healthy doctrine. And this business of God gave me a word of knowledge, and, and this is not, now that that's, you know, traditional, say, Pentecostal theology. Now it's walked in the front door of evangelicals where, you know, especially in the realm of women teachers where you have a Sarah Young with Jesus Calling or a Beth Moore, and, you know, and they get these direct messages from God. That's really bad theology and very, very, very dangerous uh, because uh, it's in violation of uh, what Christ said, really, at the end of the canon of Scripture. And, my brother, if you've not listened to this sermon, what I would direct you to in my series in Revelation would be to listen to the next of the last sermon, um, Revelation 22, 18, and 19, where I deal with this subject in depth about what it means and what it does not mean. But just the introduction to your question tells me if this is the fabric of the church, that you are in a very unhealthy church. And rather than trying to, you know, fight that, you need to leave it. Because if that's what the church believes, you are in an unhealthy church. And there's no way you can conquer that. Well, God told me this. Well, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, that that's, you deal with it, Revelation 22, 18 and 19. So listen to that message Go to searchthescriptures.org, type in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, and I think that will be very useful to you. Let's go to the next question. All right. We had another uh, listener that called in, and uh, they want to know, do you uh, listen to other pastors' sermons, and if so, who? Well, uh, right here in WAGP, the light, 88.7. So I have it on my phone. I have it on my computer. I have it in my car. So, yeah, so you can pretty much anyone that you hear in WAGP, those are people that uh, Dr. Brogy listens to when I'm in the car. Good question. All right. Very good. A couple of questions that I think can dovetail nicely. Uh, Christopher from South Africa uh, says, good day. God bless you in the name of the Lord. I want to ask, how do I find out what my spiritual gift is? How do I hone in on exactly what my gift is? And then... Um, since you're going to go down this road, Nancy wrote, I just want to say how much I've been enjoying your sermons during this COVID series. They're always inspirational. I found the spiritual gifts inventory and messages very insightful and recently filled out the assessment, but found out my mind and body often at odds with how my heart would have answered many of the questions. That's why I think it may have skewed some results. I'm 65 and my memory doesn't always remember a whole verse complete with the reference that I've committed to memory. It does pull up the essence of the verse, allowing me to find it quickly with an online search. Boy, I can appreciate that. Uh, And I do a lot of online teaching and counseling using the appropriate scriptures to respond. I completely avoid the gospel according to, I think, uh, uh, secular norms. I'm not sure what she means there, but anyway. I'm I'm guessing she's saying with uh, counseling, she's not adopting some of the secular methodologies. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. 
I answered the questions on the inventory as honestly as I could, taking into consideration my health and age limitations that perhaps skewed the results. I scored very high in wisdom, discernment, and mercy, but lower in knowledge and faith. But I don't believe you can have strong wisdom and discernment without strong biblical knowledge and faith. Thoughts? Well, uh, again, there's some parallel structures between gifts where one gift can have some of the same characteristics, but with a different emphasis. For instance, take the gift of faith and the gift of giving. A common characteristic between those two gifts is that they're able to trust God, one with money, other on faith issues, and one common expression of someone with the gift of faith is they're often a prayer warrior, where someone with the gift of giving might not be a prayer warrior on the same level, but the gift of faith might express itself in that way because they're believing and asking God to do what only he can accomplish. So here's the thing, um, Nancy, and let me go back. Who's the guy from South Africa? What's Christopher. His name? Christopher, yeah. From, from Mtunzini Kazin, South Africa. Okay. So let me, let me deal with his, and maybe it would be helpful to, to Nancy, you know, in terms of finding your spiritual gift. There's an assumption in the New Testament that gifts are discoverable. Uh, when Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So he assumes, A, that everyone has at least one spiritual gift, and two, that we can use it uh, as a good steward of God's grace. And so, um, you know, there's an expectation that you ought to find it. And so I just did a recent series that maybe this brother from uh, Mitsuzini, I'm not, where is that in Africa? I was just looking it up. It's a a small coastal town situated almost exactly halfway along KwaZulu-Natal's coastline in South Africa. Okay, so I've been to South Africa before. I haven't been to your town, but... Uh, I just did a series on spiritual gifts, and I talk about first that while it's possible for a believer who knows his spiritual gift to exercise it in the power of the flesh, it's virtually impossible to discover your spiritual gift unless you walk in the power of the Spirit. So you have to learn to consistently walk in the Spirit. And so what's fascinating is in different letters where the subject of spiritual gifts is addressed— there's usually an exhortation first as to how we should walk. So like Ephesians 4 is one of the central passages that deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. And Paul begins that chapter by imploring them as God's prisoner to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Uh, likewise, like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that would be another central passage that deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. And throughout that book, he sprinkles exhortations to a dedicated life. Like, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're to glorify God in your body. Uh, In Romans 12, where he deals with the subject of spiritual gifts, the chapter opens with the exhortation in light of the mercy God has shown us to present our bodies as a holy and living sacrifice. So, um... Part of finding out what express, and then he goes into this subject of of spiritual gifts, and it's not by accident. They're related. So a spirit-filled Christian is an obedient Christian who recognizes that he can't really live the Christian life in his own power, but he needs God's help. 
Just like a born-again Christian is a person who realizes he can't save himself, but he puts his full weight in belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save him. Well, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, now you walk in him. And so there's this ongoing presentation uh, that results in a transformation, and you begin to grow. So there's a consecration. The second principle that I dealt with is concentration. So even Nancy's question tells me that she's not real clear on the meaning of some of these gifts and how they should express themselves. So again, you might just want to do a study on spiritual gifts. I have a course on it. I did my doctoral dissertation on it. I wanted to have something practical when I was left. And so I basically published the uh, appendix to my doctoral dissertation and I've updated it and tweaked it over the years. But Again, that I think would be really useful for you. Paul says in the next verse, after he exhorts us to present ourselves to God, that for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so to have sound judgment. So he's asking us to think, um, and that involves educating yourself on the 20 gifts that are given in the New Testament. So, for instance, an earlier question uh, that came in concerned the gift of tongues. Well, if someone did a study on the gift of tongues, they would soon be educated that what we're seeing today has nothing to do with the New Testament. So you get acquainted, especially with the 16 non-signed gifts in the Bible, and then you begin to think biblically about it, about those gifts as, as they relate. And again, interestingly, with the non-signed gifts, there's a common responsibility. So there's this principle where you consecrate yourself to the Lord. There's this principle of where you're thinking But then there's this cooperation, uh, because then he'll go on and he'll say in Romans 12 and verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many in one body in Christ individually members one of another. So we can help each other discover our spiritual gift. So, for instance, Nancy mentions that she counsels women and does that. And that's a wonderful thing. That's probably the gift of exhortation that's functioning. And if that's something that you like to do and you're good at it and other people recognize you're good at it, um, my mouth does not have difficulty recognizing the hand that feeds it. And when you have a particular spiritual gift, it will not only be obvious to you, but it will be obvious to other people. So if you think you have the gift of teaching, say, and nobody else has the gift of listening, you probably have not connected the dots properly. And sometimes people want to have a particular gift because they think it's cooler or, you know, it's just has more esteem to it. And Paul reminds us that every part of the body is absolutely essential. There's parts of the body that he calls unseemly. You don't see, but they're critical. And so there are people every Sunday that allow me to do what I do when I step into that pulpit and you never see them. Those are what we might call the unseemly gifts that are at work. Uh, I see the function of my hands and my feet and my eyes and my nose, but I don't, you know, see my intestines functioning and at work. They're, they're there. I couldn't live without them. So there's all these different gifts that work. And so you should ask mature leadership in the church uh, the mature leaders in, in, say, the church at Antioch, they recognized that Paul and Barnabas were gifted such that they should support them. Um, in the Jerusalem church, they saw that Judas and Silas should be the one who 
present the information from the Jerusalem Council. Why? Because God had gifted them in that way. Um, the church was able to recognize people who had the gift of serving. And, and very often, again, when you, um, this friend here in, in South Africa, you, you, you're not sure, well, you've got to grow just like a newborn baby. You don't know what God created them to be or to do or what, what strengths they have musically or athletically until they grow. The same is true spiritually. So it starts with spiritual growth. But uh, other people will recognize your gift who are mature in the church. Two, you will be good at it. There will be something that you just do better at. And some people, one of the most common gifts given in the whole New Testament is the gift of serving, people who serve. And uh, that's one of the most needed gifts. Uh, it's not a high-profile gift. And again, we sometimes carry from the world that this gift is more important when it's not. There are people who serve in capacities in the body of Christ that no one will ever know their name in this day of stardom Christianity, but their reward will be as great as a Billy Graham or who who knows who else. Um, and I will say, too, that these, again, these are grace gifts. They're given not because you deserve them. They're called grace gifts. In the word charisma, which is the Greek word for gift, and the word charis, which is the Greek word for grace, and the word kara, they're all related words, the word for joy. Not only will you be good at it, but there'll be a sense of fulfillment when you're functioning in the area of your giftedness. And let me say parenthetically, if you scored real low in the spiritual gifts inventory in a particular area, typically it means that maybe you don't have a gift in that area. But if it's like super low, you got the score two or three or four, it might be an area of neglect in terms of responsibility. So someone got a two in evangelism. Well, you may not have the gift of evangelism, but that's one of the 16 non-signed gifts that all share a common responsibility. Everyone is called to do the work of an evangelist. But to both these people, and a number of questions have come in, some I didn't even bother to uh, address, but um, these are important questions, and I would direct you to the spiritual gifts course. You can download the handouts. You can listen to all the messages online at searchthescriptures.org. You can get the app on your phone and whatever works for you. All right, very good. Andy from Savannah writes, if Judaism rejects Jesus as God, his sacrifice and atoning blood for our sins, why are blood sacrifices not being performed or practiced? I'm assuming by the uh, Jewish believers. Well, in, uh, in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. So you couldn't just practice, you know, animal sacrifices anywhere. God said, this is the place we call today the Temple Mount. This is the place where I have honored my name, where I want the sacrifices to be brought. So God eventually in the history of Israel, as things progress, we went from a tabernacle to a permanent structure called the temple. God said, this is ground A. And this is where we want to happen. Well, Jesus predicted that that temple would be destroyed, that not one stone would stand upon another. And in 70 AD, when uh, the destruction of Jerusalem was complete, uh, it was considered one of the great wonders of the world. It was a magnificent building. And uh, even Herod, you know, Titus Vespucian said, don't destroy Herod's temple. Herod the Great had started it, and it took a long time, even long after he was dead, 
uh, to be completed, but it was magnificent. But somehow it caught on fire, and when it did, all the gold, and there was a lot of gold in the temple, it melted and uh, went down between the rocks, and literally they were pried apart. When I take people to Jerusalem, we stand at a pile of first-century temple rock that had come off the top of the Temple Mount, and the soldiers literally pried apart the rocks to get the gold. And just as Jesus predicted, not one stone stood upon another. But since 70 AD, there's been no place in which to do what God says. So any pious Jew who's going to obey God knows that they need a temple in which to do it. Now, um, there are other forms of Judaism that took place uh, that began to, you know, dig its heels in after the destruction of the temple. And so some kind of, you know, uh, take the commands of Scripture and they say, well, we can't offer an animal sacrifice, but we can make sacrificial decisions in our life. No, that's not the same. And there are many Orthodox Jews who recognize that's not what God dictated. And so they want to rebuild the temple. And I don't do it on every trip, but some trips we go to what we call the Temple Institute. And there you can see uh, all of the architectural plans for another temple that is going to be reconstructed. They've reproduced every bit of the temple furniture and all the priestly garments, uh, with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant, because Orthodox Jews say they know precisely where it is. And that when the temple is rebuilt, they're going to get the original Ark of the Covenant and bring it into the new temple. Is that temple going to be rebuilt? Well, unless you are of the Reformed camp, which the first question directed, they said no. Well, God says it is. In fact, there's coming an event that will happen in the middle of a seven-year period, which again, the Reformed people say, well, that already happened. It didn't happen. The kinds of... um, traumatic, uh, cataclysmic events that are described in Revelation, unless you're just going to spiritualize the text, has never taken place in human history. We haven't seen anything yet. You think we have problems in our day. All you see in our day is that there's a pregnancy, but the birth pangs don't begin until after the church is removed and the tribulation begins to unfold. And there will be a rebuilt temple by then such that in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will be able to go in and commit what's called the abomination of desolation. So uh, Jews recognize that. There needs to be sacrifices, and that temple is going to be rebuilt, and then God is going to teach them the meaning of the sacrifices, and there's going to be a mass Jewish conversion during that period. Listen to my series on Revelation. I deal with these things. We're out of time. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Hope you have a good day. And Friday night, ladies, don't miss it. You won't don't, don't want to miss the event here at Community Bible Church. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for details. Rare but real. Yes.